Hey guys, today I'm going to be speaking about the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and why African countries have been skeptical of these financial institutions and why they continue to be and why it's fine to be. So at the time of independence, lots of African countries had a commodities boom. Um, African countries generally sell lots of agricultural and like primary goods but also have a lot of natural resources like oil and gold and cobalt and chrome as the average person knows that's kind of what africa is known for um but also african countries had the challenge of having to build new states that weren't just and like build new states and services for people who weren't just the minority um, like white settler community because the most modernized and um, equipped places in most countries were in the urban areas and particularly where the white settler minority would live. So countries were faced with the challenge of having to expand water systems, electricity grids, um, food, security, all of the things that are necessary for a new state right and for governments to adequately meet the requirements of a social contract so a lot of african countries at this stage took on a lot of socialist policies that were reliant on welfare which is what the people wanted and they fought for and they elected leaders who were saying exactly that and i think that it was absolutely um, valid to want that after being deprived in your own country in your own land for hundreds of years and so independence leaders funded welfare programs through luckily this commodity um, boom um, and took on some debt but debtors were very happy to borrow africans money because of this commodity boom by 1980 there was a recession and a huge commodity bust uh, because there had been inflation, because commodity prices had led to a huge boom in investment. So for countries like Nigeria, who are commodity, and most countries in Africa who are reliant on commodities and natural resources, this is highly problematic. For example, in Nigeria, a barrel of oil cost 35 USD in the early 1970s. And by the 1980s, a barrel of oil cost 10 US dollars. That signifies an extreme decrease of um, national income while these countries still had debt. So their income has essentially been slashed in half because it's not just oil it's most of the commodities that they sold the income has been slashed in half but your debts remain right because you were borrowed a lot of money from the international community and that is where the imf and the world bank come in so the imf and the world bank come in and they provide loans they are called the bank of last resort the imf is called the bank of last resort so if you have absolutely no money and your country is shambolic you go to them and they will help you as an absolute last resort so african countries had to seek help from these institutions because they had debt crises and it was across the region they'd been borrowed way too much money 
and they had no income to pay it. So what happened is the IMF and the World Bank were like, okay, cool, we will give you this money, but we're going to have to make sure that you're able to pay it back. So we're going to put in a thing called conditionality, right? And those are just conditions of a loan, which is fair, right? Most most banks, you go to a bank, they give you some primary conditions. You have to pay it back. You have to pay it back with this interest, etc. But these IMF conditionalities and these World Bank conditionalities were problematic in that they asked people, they asked countries to put in, to install policies that were very pro-West. For example, markets had to be liberalized, right? And African economies were very fragile at that stage. So liberalizing means that you're opening it up to competition from elsewhere. So let's say um, we had a closed clothing market where we only allow people to or only allow shops to buy clothes and textiles from, um, let's say, Ghanaian um Ghanaian factories that's our Ghanaian law but because of the loan conditionalities that have been imposed by the IMF they say you have to open it up so now whatever um, Chinese uh, factory owners uh, can compete with you and American ones and ones from the UK and they have bigger industries and they can produce at a cheaper price so they essentially end up just drowning you out so that's what like that was a integral policy for them like this market liberalism another one was um, privatization so states couldn't pump any more money into the pri- the public sector uh, because that was way too expensive to maintain so all of these um, public enterprises needed to be privatized and the only people that could really afford to buy or partner up with the country on these things were international investors. So it's essentially an internationalization of public goods and services. Um, another thing was that there was austerity, so cutdowns on things like hospitals, education, water, electricity. So subsidies that states were giving for these um public goods and services were cut. These conditionalities had severe negative externalities on African countries. Um, For example, in Ivory Coast, you saw children not going to school anymore, but rather joining, um, working on farms as laborers uh, to contribute to household income. So there was a shift in in labor uh, in the region, so like, in Ivory Coast and its neighboring countries, and and that led to increased conflict in different ways, um, and also like a lost generation of of uneducated youth essentially, and then we had um, the increase of incidences of diarrhea, of cholera because of unsanitary, because of a lack of of sanitation, of good sanitation. Um, subsidies on water had been decreased so people had to find other means and like other water sources because water is a necessary resource for survival as a human being Um, and you also saw just economic decline 
and this like spiral to the dependence that we know like the economic dependence that we know um, Africa is characterized by right now. So the skepticism about the IMF and the World Bank is because of their approach to loans and the conditions of those loans and just how severe they are and the negative externalities that they produce, which I believe is valid, um, especially because economic growth and some of the objectives just did not come to fruition. So because so few of the objectives were met, there have been a lot of criticisms and lots of questions about what the actual aim of the IMF and the World Bank are, right? Was it a neutral um, endeavor that was really trying to help struggling African countries? Or was it trying to maintain the global status quo? Another criticism of their, their agenda and like their, their approach has been that this is a specifically imperialist agenda because why would you open markets and ask for privatization? Um, this is an explicit way to get the country's key resources, key generative industries into the hands of um, international players because they have the money to invest so like this is one of the biggest criticisms and this criticism has been the same for years um, and the IMF has not addressed it in fact during COVID now there's articles that are coming out that are saying the same kind of austerity is being um, given as a policy option um, as a policy condition for African countries who borrowed money during COVID-19. So people are predicting another decade of like economic loss for this continent because of borrowing during COVID-19. Um, so yeah, the skepticism I would say is very valid. The IMF and the World Bank, if you look into their history and how they were established. They were established um, to initially rescue uh, the EU post, I think it was World War II. And also it is very much American. Um, America has veto power um, and also is one of the biggest investors in the IMF and the World Bank. So like their ideals and what benefits them most is likely to prevail, which is obviously a problem because American imperialism is very real. So these financial institutions are not politically neutral. They have their own agendas, which is to continue the expansion of capitalist imperialism um, that has led and bias towards the United States and the United States' allies, which is most of the West, right? And this is all done at the expense of the global South. So Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, is not the only um, loser that's being crowded out here. The rest of the global South is in the same position. Latin America, there's a lot of literature on Latin America 
and how neoliberalism um, has caused economic decline, which has led to conflict, inequality, and all of the things that come with um, just having a system that is skewed towards the West. Um, the Asian countries are marketed as like the people who made it out and were successful um, in this very rigged regime. Um, and even they are complaining. And that's why we kind of have this um, new mobilization to a new world order that is that looks like it's going to be led by China and Russia. So, yeah, and they are introducing their own bank, like the BRICS Bank, which is a like quite a big, which looks like it can be quite a big lending institution in the future, right? So we're going to start seeing a multipolarity in the international system, which might be beneficial to the global south. So, yeah, that's... So that's everything from me. I tried to synthesize a bunch of information that I've spent quite a long time reading about. So I didn't want to make it unnecessarily technical. But also I think that I wanted to make it as informative enough for someone who doesn't know about these things to have some sort of foundational argument so that they can go on and look it up. So that's what I'd suggest you do. And I think that it's been really cool to try to organize my thoughts around this. Um, I've done research on this, my current research and my past research. So trying to synthesize the information has been a very interesting and valuable experience for me right now. So I hope you enjoyed it and I'm quite keen to do another one soon.